History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 431st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be talking about a pretty sad place. This is the Twin Bridges Orphanage, which was located in Montana. We haven't done a whole lot of haunted locations in Montana. So I'm like, I need to find something in Montana for us to do. And I found this one. So we're going to be talking about this place. Obviously, we know orphanages, especially back in the day, were not a really great place for kids to get stuck. This one had a lot of kids there. There weren't actually orphans. Before we get into talking about that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Elliot, Barry, Sue, Nadia, Dennis, Gianna, and Gary. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. And now, this moment, Nodity. moment in oddity was suggested by Jenny Lynn Rains. The Kyoto Costume Institute collects and preserves Western clothing. Parts of their collection date back centuries. They not only exhibit the clothing, but research and study the clothing trends to better understand human culture. Some of the clothing in their collection reflects the use of the wing casings of various types of wood-boring beetles to enhance and decorate clothing. For example, they have an 1850 dress and shawl made from white cotton mold that is decorated with thousands of beetle wings. Using these wings was a standard practice in countries like Japan, India, Thailand, Myanmar, and China. The favored beetles came from two varieties, the Sternocera aguicinata and the Chrysocroa fogedissima. The wings were collected humanely after the beetles had gone through their brief life cycle. The wings are so hard that a tiny hole needs to be bored into them to stitch them in place. Some pieces have as many as 2,000 wings attached to them. The coloring of the wings was beautiful and gave many dresses an iridescent look with green and blue hues. The 19th century was the most popular time for these types of garments. We imagine most people in the 21st century would not be interested in wearing the wings of dead bugs because that certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of April, on the 6th in 1832, the Black Hawk War began. Black Hawk was a Sauk warrior who was born in 1767, where the state of Illinois would eventually be. His people called him Makataimi Shi Kiakiak, 
and they considered him a fierce and courageous fighter. He proved himself valiant in battles the Sauk had with the Osage. In the early 1800s, Black Hawk turned his attention to the white people that were pushing his people out of their land. He was angered when the Sauk and Fox tribes signed a treaty that ceded their territory east of the Mississippi River to the United States in 1804. He would eventually sign his own name to the treaty in 1816, but later claimed he didn't realize that it meant he was giving up his home village of Sakanuk. The U.S. Army started building forts nearby and settlers moved into the village. Black Hawk refused to leave and prepared to fight. He gathered his people and left the disputed territory, but soon returned with his forces believing that other tribes would be joining them, as well as the British to the north. Those reinforcements never showed, so Black Hawk knew he would need to surrender. Before that could happen, his truce bearer was killed, and the war was on. Black Hawk had early victories, but eventually almost had his entire warrior group annihilated, and he finally did surrender. Almost 600 Native Americans had been killed during the war in comparison to 70 settlers and soldiers. Black Hawk was taken on tour in an attempt to dissuade other tribes from fighting back, and spent the last six years of his life under the supervision of another Sauk chief, whom he considered an enemy because he had cooperated with the United States government. There's not much out there more heartbreaking than a child with no parents because their parents have passed away. Except for perhaps children who still have living parents and yet end up in an orphanage. In the state of Montana, many of these orphaned and abandoned children ended up in an orphanage located in the city of Twin Bridges. This was the Montana State Orphans Asylum that was also known as Twin Bridges Orphanage and later the Montana Children's Center. It opened in 1894 and housed children for 81 years. Today, it's closed and privately owned and is reputedly one of the more haunted locations in the state. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Twin Bridges Orphanage. Montana is known as Big Sky Country and for good reason. This is a state of wide open spaces and a small population of people. Montana had its big boom and an infusion of people starting in the mid-1800s when mining came to the state after mineral-rich hills were discovered. Miners pulled out quartz, iron, copper, and silver. Butte, Montana became known as the richest hill on earth. Nearby, Twin Bridges had its share of mining operations with 12,726 mines opening. The area was located at the confluence of the Ruby Beaverhead and Big Hole Rivers, which formed the Jefferson River, so it was a great spot to build a town. Judge M.H. Lott and his brother John T. Lott would be the first white men to settle in the Ruby Valley in 1864. The brothers built two bridges across the Beaverhead River, and this is where the name for the town came from. The Lots continued to add on to their little community, and M.H. Lott served as its first mayor after it was incorporated in 1902. As was the case for all mining towns, the people eventually left and things went bust. For those that stayed, times were tough. Many families were left in poverty after the boom. The need was so great in the state that the legislature passed an act in 1893 that established the Montana State Orphans Asylum for the care and education of orphans, foundlings, and destitute children. 
the orphanage was initially governed by a board of five trustees. They chose a site on which to build and hired a superintendent and matron. The superintendent was then tasked with hiring nurses and other attendants. The board also was responsible for education in the area and made responsible for establishing schools and vocational training shops. Twin Bridges was selected for the location of the orphanage and the site started with a Victorian structure known as the castle. Any child under the age of 12 was eligible for admission. Older kids were surveyed on a case-by-case basis. The goal for many of the children was to get them into a private home. Unfortunately, many of the children that would call the asylum home were not actual orphans. Some were abandoned and others had parents who couldn't take care of them. There was no welfare programs or foster programs at the time. Life at the orphanage was very rigid and scheduled. Every morning, bedwetters were whipped. Matrons started tying shoes to their hands because they thought that they wet the bed because they were playing with certain areas of their body, Kelly. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine tying shoes to children's hands? Horrible. Kids tried to hide their wet sheets by getting up when the furnaces kicked on at 5 a.m. and drying their sheets in front of them before bed checks at 6 a.m. And you can only imagine these kids who are already having emotional issues because most children, if they're wetting the bed, there's something else going on. It's usually not a physical issue. Right. And then if you're getting beat for it every single time, it's just going to make it worse. So you can see these kids probably were terrified getting up that early so that they could get the beds dried. Meals were always the same. Tuesdays, there was stew, beans on Wednesdays, hash or chip beef on Thursdays, and fish on Fridays. And that's all I found. I don't know if they didn't feed them on Mondays, Saturdays, and Sundays. I was going to say, they fasted on the weekends? (laughs) Maybe they gave them something a little bit more not quite so rigid on those days. One of the stories we found while doing our research was on the Friedman family. Alice Friedman and her husband had gotten a divorce, and he left the family. Alice worked as a research editor, but there wasn't much money in that, and she soon found that she couldn't handle the six mouths she had to feed. Can you imagine her husband's just like, see you with the six kids? It's terrible. She felt she had no other choice when she walked her kids into the Butte-Silverbow County Courthouse in 1938. She sat the children on the granite steps inside and told them to behave and that she would be back for them later. She added that the state was babysitting them. Now, before anybody thinks that this is a horrible, wretched woman, which, you know, I'm, I'm not going to judge what's going on here, but she had tried different various things to get help. And it's like, I don't know if she was falling through the cracks or she made too much money for the help or she just, at this point, she's so frustrated. I think she was just like, I'm going to show the state. You're going to be babysitting my kids. So the six siblings who ranged in ages from eight to 15 waited and they waited. Some county workers noticed that the children had been sitting for several hours. And when there was no parent to fetch them by noon, they went and bought some sandwiches for the kids. The juvenile court was contacted and the Freedmans were taken to a receiving home that night. When no parent came forward for the children, they were taken to the orphanage in Twin Bridges. Harold Friedman was one of those children, and when he was interviewed as an adult, he said, It was in some ways a rather shocking move to be put in an orphanage, but I felt a lot of pressure lifted off me because I'd worried so much about our situation. So people know there was a two-week period here between them being left on the steps and moving to the orphanage. So probably during that two weeks, you know, he was worrying what is going to happen to us. He was an older brother and felt responsible for his younger siblings. Alice worked hard to get her children back and eventually got her four eldest children released to her. The final two, who were twins, were reunited with the family in 1945. Noel Friedman, who was one of those twins, wrote a book about his experiences at the orphanage called Dumped. So that kind of gives you a feeling of how he felt about the whole situation. 
the property at the orphanage grew and expanded. The original two-room schoolhouse and nearby theater were combined into a 10-room schoolhouse in the 1940s. Barns were added, as was a chicken coop. There was a butcher shop and a shoe shop and a steam plant and gardens. Everything was run by the kids. They would compete on sports teams like track and basketball. There were fun times, too. The Junior League would bring in shows featuring puppets or stage plays. The kids played marbles and other games. And although they worked a lot, they were given plenty of sleep. One former orphan felt that they did better in state matches because they were strong from work and good sleep and were fed healthy food. Harry Murphy hated his time at the Institute, though. He claimed that children were beaten and locked in dark coat closets. Some children were hung up on coat hooks as punishment. The children wore uniforms of overalls and denim jackets. And that was one of the ways that the people who lived in Twin Bridges would know that these kids had run away because there were quite a few who would run away from the orphanage and they'd see them walking through town in their overalls and denim jacket and be, oh, we know where you belong. It was interesting, Kelly, when I was doing the research for this because they'd had reunions where they'd brought back several dozen of the orphans who had lived there over different years and stuff like that. Some of them had actually known each other, some didn't. And it was interesting to get their perspective because you had some who saw it as, I mean, none of them thought this was great and I'm so glad this happened to me. But there were some who felt it was not so negative that they actually got some values from it, that they did learn how to work hard and got some skills because they did have vocational type stuff that they were doing. They felt that that was positive. But on the flip side, it does seem that there was a lot of abuse with this. And later on, we're going to be talking, of course, about the hauntings. And basically, one of the ways that we've gotten a hold of that is because Ghost Adventures went in there and Destination Fear went in there. And Zach managed to talk to one of the matrons. He had her come. And I think she was kind of clueless about what was going on or what she was being interviewed for. Huh. Or maybe she just really was this hard-nosed of a person. But she said that there was this little boy that she would have in the bathrooms cleaning. And she goes, every time he'd come into the bathroom and I'd be telling him, you know, you got to clean the toilets, he'd be like, ugh. And she said, I just got really sick of it the one day. So she goes, I stuck his head in the toilet and flushed it. Oh, my word. And the way that she told it to Zach, it was very matter-of-factly, and she even, like, laughed about it. That's horrible. And you could just see Zach sitting there kind of looking at her, and regardless of what we think of him, he drives us nuts sometimes. He definitely had an issue with that. You could tell that he was just like, wow, how are you laughing about yeah. doing that to a child, you know? That's horrible. So that's kind of where some of these matrons and women who were in charge were like. Now, I'm not going to say, of course, that that was all of them. I'm sure there were some that were not that way. Think of this kind of like when people are in jail and you have the guards and stuff. Some of them are good. Some are bad. And I think some or even in asylums, you're just there for so long that sometimes I think it actually turns the people who are there a little bit, too, because it's just so much. Right. Yeah. Of pressure and negativity and these emotional type things going on. Takes quite a mental toll, I'm sure. The state of Montana started to change things for widows and orphaned or abandoned children in 1916. One of the first women elected to the state legislature, Maggie Smith Hathaway, championed the creation of the Montana Mother's Pension. This helped provide money for single or widowed mothers so they could keep their children with them. Another of the first female legislators, Emma Ingalls, helped create the Bureau of Child and Animal Protection. This gave oversight to orphanages and placement homes. Soon the Montana State Orphanage became more of a first-stop holding place rather than a long-term placement location. A cottage system was also started to make the orphanages seem more like a home. The Twin Bridges location soon had four colonial-styled cottages 
that could house up to 200 children. So each one had 50 children in it. And <laughs> they call them like these colonial styled cottages. They look like big brick dorms to me. They're not cottages. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I was watching it with you. Yeah. The Institute hit its peak during the Great Depression with 300 children living there. The 1930s would bring more federal and state programs, and this lowered the population at Twin Bridges to 282 children. The number of children housed at the orphanage continued to decline in the 1950s, and by 1959, there were only 156 children in residence. The Montana Children's Center closed its doors in 1975 with 50 children awaiting placement in foster care. Over 5,000 children had passed through the doors of the Twin Bridges Orphanage. Many of those children had been failed along the way. There are reports that claim that 100 children died here during that time. As was the case with asylums for adults, there was not enough staff for proper care. And children need more affection and individual treatment, which they did not receive. Siblings were not kept together either. Fred Wentz spent time at the orphanage and he said, The problem was that I knew I had brothers and sisters somewhere. I just didn't know why I was in the orphanage and not with them. That hurt me. I've carried that throughout my life. Yes, he had brothers and sisters who were still at home, so it's not surprising he was hurt by his placement. I have no idea why he was separated out from his family. It's terrible. I don't know if they were like, well, we can't afford that extra mouth there, so we'll just send him off. So when they were at the orphanage, they were separated from each other, but he was separated just period. His brothers and sisters were at home. So sad. And he wasn't. Leslie Adams is the current owner of the property. She bought the property with her father in 2005 with 25 buildings spread out over 100 acres. And let me say, just from seeing this woman being interviewed about this, she teared up a few times when she was talking to Zach about it. She loves this property and she cares about what happened to the kids here. So it's very cool. Many of the buildings are in a dilapidated condition. Several have been demolished. It looked like when I looked on Facebook to see if I could get some more information, Kelly, that the property has been put up for sale. And I think it was a while ago, probably even before the COVID pandemic. Adams claims that the property has had some unexplained stuff going on. She has heard several times the disembodied singing of children in some of the abandoned buildings. Large groups of children are seen playing in and around the gym building. The children disappear suddenly. That's how they know they're not, you know, just some kids who came across the property. The school has reports of disembodied voices and footsteps are heard. Objects move on their own. People feel a coldness that hits them to their core in this building. Small faces of children are seen looking out of the windows of the castle. Disembodied singing of children is heard in here. The spirit of a matron has also been seen in this building, and the bottom floor of the castle is said to be the most haunted on the property. And the castle looks really cool because it's basically an old Victorian house. I'd like to have that matron that did that to the little boy with sticking his head in the toilet. Have some of the spirits do that to her here when yeah. she passes. <laughs> See how much you like that. Yeah, she, she just started off saying, I really shouldn't tell you this. And it's like, yeah, you probably really shouldn't have. In November of 2016, Adams invited the crew from Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures to come investigate. She confirmed with Zach that she had heard the children singing many times, and it's usually when she's alone in some of the buildings. 
Noel Friedman talked to Zach and told him that he knew of one little girl who died out in the field because she got kicked by a horse. According to the show, there had been 30 headstones out in a field that mysteriously disappeared. I know that Zach and the crew, and then we're going to talk about the crew from Destination Fear, all of them went out to a cemetery that was up a ways. I don't believe it was on the property. It's a separate place. And they have a lot of orphans buried out there. So I don't know if some of them got buried on the property here and then they just took the headstones out and didn't move the bodies or if maybe they did move the bodies. I don't know. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Curtis Mathis is a friend of Leslie's, and he was there one day walking the property when he saw a group of kids playing at the basketball hoops. Only, there wasn't any kids on the property. In the sewing room, Zach stood between two full-body mirrors that faced each other, and he claimed to feel an electrical energy. They brought in their equipment. Aaron got the word electric on the ovulus, and the millimeter spiked to 4.7. So there was something there. We'd love to know if there was electricity to the building. Yeah, obviously, sometimes I think they dramatize things on this show. And with Zach standing between these two mirrors, I was like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, you're feeling some electrical energy there. Even though in the back of my mind, I am thinking, if you are going to capture some energy, I would think mirrors facing each other is a hell of a way to do it. Because mirrors are known to try to, you know, they can trap things. Right. And if they're facing each other, it seems like it would be even more able to do something like that. And so then when they brought in the equipment, you start going, okay, they're getting something on the equipment. And it was spiking to like, you know, 0.2, 0.3, 0.4. So it's like, okay, they're getting a little bit of something going there. But then all of a sudden it was like, bam, 4.7. And then it kind of rolled down a little bit and then it peaked again. And so I don't know if there's some electricity that was in the building that they were picking up on, but these are dilapidated abandoned buildings. So I'm thinking, no. I I don't think you would be running electricity to them at this time until you get them all refurbed. Yeah, it's hard to say. It would be nice if we had known that directly. Yeah. Usually they try to debunk stuff, and they did do that with a couple of the things that happened with this investigation that they're going to do. So I'm assuming that is something that they looked into. There are tunnels running under the property, and Jay went down there. I would have not done this. It was under the ground, just down this narrow little stair thing. And they were like, well, Jay, if we don't hear from you in an hour or whatever, it's not a bad place to die. (laughs) Lovely. He asked if there were any children there when he was down walking through them. And you could hear unexplained children's voices in the distance. It definitely was picked up on the camera. He also claimed to feel something run and brush by his leg twice. And Jay was waist deep in water. That's another reason why I would what? not have gone down there. Because I'm like, what is that water? Where did it come from? What's in it? I missed that part. <laughs> and if something brushed against my leg twice, was it paranormal or is there something in that water? It's a gator. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's not a gator in my I know. I know. I don't want to know what it could possibly be. He also said that he heard children singing. Now, I was wondering to myself, he's talking about how he hears children singing. I didn't hear that part, but I did hear what sounded like children's voices. What in the hell was going on at this place that you would have had children down in these tunnels that would have left those sounds down there? No idea. Because I'm starting to think that the singing of children, because it's such a prominent, unexplained thing happening here, 
that this is something that's residual, that's like trapped in the ether here for some right. reason. I would imagine so. I mean, the only thing that I could think of, but again, I didn't view this part. I think I was working at the time. Was it anything that could be related like a root cellar or something like that? Or it was really I long. Said tunnels, so. it said tunnels. It seemed really long. And I mean, it had stairs going down to it. So it seems like it had to have some other function. Like this wasn't like the sewage or anything like that, I don't think. Okay. I need to watch it. So I don't know. Maybe they had a reason to have kids down there. Also, I don't know what the weather is like in Montana. Was this someplace that they could go down if they had a bad weather or tornado or something coming through like a cellar? I don't know. But I did wonder why you'd have kids down there. They were pretty, and it, these were pretty small tunnels. It wasn't big. It was very narrow. Seems like they were something that might have been for maintenance or pipes or something. Aaron and Zach heard multiple loud noises in the castle when they were investigating in there, and this was picked up on the camera audio. And Kelly, this is one of the things they debunked because it turned out to be a pigeon. Aww. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there was a couple times I'm like, wow, that was a pretty loud noise. And they were hearing disembodied footsteps in the castle. So it was like, okay, is something walking around? And then all of a sudden this pigeon comes flying out. And of course they scream. Zach has a, a way of getting animals to jump out at him, whether it's bats or now here it was a pigeon. Then they found footprints in the castle. And I was like, wow, those are really weird. They're, they're small. So at first I'm thinking they were children's footprints. And they started in the center of the room and went to a window. But then they got the cameras closer to them and on closer inspection they realized, and you as the viewer realize, this is from a raccoon. Ah. These weren't little kids' footprints. <laughs> but at first, from a distance, it did make you go, huh. Clearly, somehow a raccoon got in here and made his way back out the window. At this point, Zach and Aaron are figuring that there's no spirits in the castle because they're hearing noises, they're seeing weird things, and it all's being related to something natural, which I thought was very cool that they were showing we're debunking this stuff. They change their minds, though, when they see a bluish glow in the main area of the house. They also caught an EVP at the same time saying, I see you. Then they caught another EVP of a full sentence saying, can't do nothing. And then you can tell there's something else there. They couldn't understand it or make it out. So they're like, you know, if any of you listening can make it out, let us know what you think. I actually thought that the end was saying, can you? Can't do nothing, can you? And it was after they were like, wow, do you see that blue light? Because you couldn't see it because they always run around with their night vision camera. You couldn't see it on the night vision because it's this bluish glow. Zach is explaining that. So they don't have any actual footage of that. Maybe it was there. Maybe it wasn't. But it was very interesting that he's talking about this bluish glow. And then all of a sudden they get these EVPs. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. He's seeing us. Could be. Jay later caught an anomaly on his camera. The ovalist said projection hide, and return right after the double light orb anomaly was recorded. And it did look like something walking through, like from one room to another. It was kind of a shadowy, but it had these two bright orb kind of parts to it. Interesting. So Jay and Billy thought they were being told to return to the area of the gym where they had been before. They heard three unexplained knocks when they were standing outside of the shower room and smelled sulfur, and they felt something dark was in there. Yeah, I never know what to trust with this stuff. <laughs> I mean, I could hear what sounded like some knocking. I don't know if it was three for sure. But of course, all of a sudden, Jay goes, wait a minute. And Jay gets very easily scared. He's kind of like Aaron. Aaron gets easily scared, too. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he's like, wait, we're smelling sulfur. And then there were three knocks. So he immediately went to, there's something demonic in there. 
They moved on to the pool room and heard the voices of children. And there was singing caught on the camera audio. Now, for all I know, they had some sound effect of children singing in a distance and they just kept playing that somewhere. Oh, no. (laughs) There were many times that you could hear kids singing. So it was like, wow, that's weird. Zach and Aaron joined them and they heard a ball bouncing. And when they shined their lights to the end of the pool, a ball that had not been there before was on the bottom of the pool. They had a static camera shooting the entire pool area and they caught the ball rolling from a room into the pool area and then falling into the pool. The only issue for us is that we don't know that there weren't any production people back there. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden you see this ball come from back there. And it was very hard to see because, of course, it's dark in there. But you do kind of see it's one of those rubber balls. So it was kind of shiny in whatever light was reflecting on it. So you could kind of see it moving as the light was reflecting on it. And so, I mean, it did roll out of that room all on its own from what you could see. But But I don't know know if there was anyone in there. I just don't know. So. Then Zach asked the child that they thought was there to move the ball, and it did start moving. However, there was some water in the pool. It did go from completely stationary to rolling, though. I didn't know how to judge it, (laughs) because when I saw it moving, and it did move in, like, different directions, so it wasn't necessarily like the flow of water just took it in one way. Right. It could have been something moving it. I don't know, but the fact that there was water in it made me go, oh, I can't completely trust that either. It's always tough when you're not there yourself. Exactly. I mean, that's why I love doing our own investigations, because then I know for a fact this stuff happened. And then I hope that our listeners trust that we are going to be completely honest with you and not make up a bunch of BS. Exactly. Zach took the ovalus down to where the ball was, and it gave the name Carol. The guys got excited, and then it said, laugh. So let's for a moment go with the fact that this is actually all really happening This was a really sweet interaction because they were getting enough stuff going on that they thought they had a child with them. So then you have this child going, I wonder if they'll play ball with me, rolls the ball out, gets down into the pool that only has a little bit of, I mean, it was just, you know, some water that's in the bottom because this used to be an indoor pool, Kelly, but now you know. The roof is missing. It's an outdoor pool now. It's now outdoor, surrounded by some decrepit walls. (laughs) Yes. So whatever water was in there is probably whatever's been left over from rain and stuff. You can imagine that this child would be down there with a ball pushing it around for Zach. And then they're like, you know, who are you? And she says her name. And then they're all excited about it. So she's laughing because she's like, oh, they're excited about my name. And something else I didn't include here is Zach also got twist on the obelisk. He was standing, there's stairs that go down into the pool or uh, like a ladder, you know, one of those ladders you can get into the pool and out of the pool. He was standing on it and he was twisting in a weird way to show everybody what the ovalist was saying. And then all of a sudden it said twist. Oh, that's so bizarre. it was like she was laughing and going, oh, he's all twisted up on the ladder. <laughs> and so he, he was laughing about that, too, and said, oh, you think that's pretty funny, don't you? And so it was a cute little interaction, I thought. That's what they got there. There was some interesting stuff that happened. I was definitely, as long as they weren't playing with the voices of children, it definitely sounded like you're hearing voices of children. And since the woman who owns the property, that's the main thing she's hearing. I think there might be some kids that are hanging out here. At least we have something residual that's hanging in the air. Sure. So they were there, what did we say, in 2016? So now right here in 2021, Destination Fear from the Travel Channel also has investigated the property. Now, I have to say, I don't watch this, so I'm not as aware of who these individuals are and how they go about doing their investigations. 
I got the feeling that they usually investigate together and then they sleep separately from each other in a location. And the idea behind this program seems to be how fear affects hauntings. And that's why they call it destination fears. They're trying to see, which to me, I think it's kind of self-explanatory. Fear feeds negativity. Sure. Yep. It's one of the reasons why I don't like to take fear into a haunted location because you might end up having something you don't want to have there because it's going to feed off of that stuff. So exactly. We try to keep everything positive, And so far, we've had positive experiences. Dakota, who heads up the team, thought this would be a great place to investigate because these children would have felt a lot of fear, not only because of their treatment, but because they had nobody coming to get them or save them from the situation. Lisa Nyhart had investigated the property, and she told the crew that her entire body went into fight or flight mode the minute she walked into the castle. She felt lightheaded and dizzy as well. Supposedly, she was investigating with another team at some time, so I don't know if they do different kinds of ghost hunts here. The Destination Fear team is made up of four people, and Dakota had them all start alone in separate locations to give them a feeling of loneliness and being abandoned like the kids. His sister Chelsea was in the high girl's cottage, and she asked if anyone was with her. She had an ovulus with her. This said Anne and then Harriet, which of course would line up with the fact this was a girl's cottage. Dakota took the music box into the locker room of the gym, and he got some interactions in response to questions. So this isn't like a regular music box. This is one of those music boxes that has a motion detector on it. So if you walk in front of it, it makes it start playing. Based on the responses to the questions he was getting, and there was definitely something that would step in front of it, then step away from it, it seemed he was talking to a girl who didn't like her time at the orphanage. One of the other members of the team is named Tanner, and he heard coughing while he was in the school. They broke into pairs, and Chelsea and Alex were in a room on the second floor of the castle, and a door slammed shut on its own. At least, it seemed that way, but we couldn't see the bottom of the door. Yeah, so we both were watching that, and I was like, whoa, whoa, because Chelsea had her back to it, and so she didn't know it was happening. And then, of course, it slammed, so she screamed and jumped because she wasn't prepared for that. But Alex was kind of facing that direction, so we're like, how is he not seeing the door moving and saying something? Right. And we could not see the bottom of the door, so I don't know. The word friend came across the ovulus and girl when they asked what was there with them. Then things took a dark turn. Hide an enemy came across. There are stories that something dark resides in the castle. The craziest thing happened in the school with Tanner and Dakota. They blew up three balloons, tied strings on them, and then hung them from the ceiling. They moved slightly back and forth because of a draft. So Diane told me that the balloons would have to move drastically to convince her that there was something paranormal. Then one of the balloons exploded. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty weird because the whole idea behind this, at first I was like, he's blowing up the balloons with his own air so they're not going to like float because I have seen balloons that have moved like we've seen that one video at the funeral for a little boy and the mom had balloons up at the front and one of them comes away from all the other balloons, floats across the room and stops right in front of her. Right. Yeah. And so you're like, wow, that really makes me feel like her child just said, here's my here's a balloon mommy or something. So I was thinking that's what they were going to do. But then when he was blowing them up, I'm like, what are they going to do? Is he going to rub it against his head and (laughs) static electricity to the wall and see if it moves? So then they just hung him from the ceiling and they were moving, you know, back and forth slightly. And I'm like, well, there's probably, I don't know, are the windows all in in this place? How in the world are you going to prove that there's a ghost there because they're moving? And I mean, he did keep saying there is a draft. 
So I was like, I mean, you're going to have to have one of those balloons that's just drooping, pick itself up and like go towards the ceiling or something for me to be like, okay, there's a ghost there. And then bam. And it was on camera. So it wasn't like all of a sudden they hear an explosion and then move the camera back over there. Right. They had a static camera trained on it. Yeah. So if they blew up that balloon, it had to be with something that we couldn't see flying at it. Because that that was the only thing I could think of is, you know, somebody throwing a dart at it or something that would make it explode. Right. But you'd see that on the camera. But I could see one of these matrons being like, let's stop playing around here and pop in that balloon. Very true. Living in an orphanage would have been very lonely and scary. But there would have been good times, too. Lots of children to play with and lots of activities to help develop into a prepared adult. Most of the activity here seems fairly positive. Much of it seems female in nature. It's one thing I really noticed is anytime they were getting names or they thought they were speaking to something, all girls. Yeah, I'm wondering if perhaps there were many more girls than boys just because boys could work in the house, work work on the farm. Yeah. Yep. That did make me wonder if we had more girls here. I just thought it was so fascinating to it seemed like everything here was female in nature. Is the Twin Bridges Orphanage haunted? That is for you to decide. I'm not sure what's going to happen to this property. I know she's still got it up for sale. I went and looked at the website that they have for it. And I mean, they're offering it as, you know, ready to move in kind of property that she's taking care of a lot of it. She's replaced like 15 of the roofs. She's got horses and other things out there. It's a great place to have cattle out there to graze. It's on 100 acres. So... I don't know what's going to become of this, but she's definitely trying to save as many of the buildings as she can. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We did have Dewey share this story in the crew. So my wife and I had another experience recently. It was during our visit to the Clark County Museum. It's a museum dedicated to everything from the Native American tribes to the October 1st shooting. The first two situations occurred in the ghost town part. My wife said she felt spirits in the jailhouse and blacksmith shop. She said she just felt a presence in the jailhouse, but that the blacksmith came off as very territorial. So she backed off. I don't know how what exactly happened that she was like, okay, let's not go near there. It could just be that she's sensitive to it. And she just had that that Mm -hmm. feeling, that kind of foreboding of I need to get out of this space. Sure. Doesn't belong to me. After moving on to the train exhibit, she felt more in the caboose cart of the train. Again, I felt nothing at that point. We then moved on to the old town portion of the museum. These are actual homes and businesses that were transferred over from the Strip from back in the day. First came the Beckley House. We both couldn't help but feel a strict presence. Mr. and Mrs. Beckley's photos and belongings are still in the house itself, and you couldn't help but feel like they were there saying, don't touch that. (laughs) All things considered, it makes sense. Next came the Goumont house. I hope that's how you say it. My wife and daughter walked in first. But as soon as I crossed the threshold, I felt an extremely heavy presence. One that made me feel hated, unwelcome, and loathed all at the same time. Wow. As soon as I closed the door, I turned around and immediately locked eyes with an elderly old woman mannequin. Ah! Oh my gosh. (laughs) I swear on all that is holy, her eyes followed me. Ew. I couldn't make a move without feeling watched and hated. My wife walked up to me and saw me looking at the mannequin and she said, she hated your ass. And I said, I got to step out. As soon as I did, all felt normal again. So it's like his wife was picking up that the spirit there was not liking him. 
As we pressed on through, we felt slight sensations in the Giles house, but nothing like the others. As we got back to the gift shop, we asked if there's been any experiences. They were more than happy to share. From the Beckleys touching and grabbing to the elderly lady and more, I strongly recommend paying a visit if you're in the Las Vegas Henderson area. And then they included some photos in the crew as well. So thanks for sharing that, Dewey. Yikes. Yeah, very much so. And then Kate wrote us an email. She says, hi, Diane and Kelly. I hope you've both been well. Things have been a little chaotic here lately, so I was behind on episodes and wound up binging about eight hours worth of them yesterday while I was working. So I don't recall which episode it was, but I wanted to share my Laurel Hill Cemetery experience with you both. Laurel Hill Cemetery was what reignited my interest in all things spooky and mysterious. I loved Halloween and ghost stories as a kid, but somewhere along the way I'd lost interest. In 2015, my girlfriend at the time had heard about a walking tour of Laurel Hill Cemetery for Halloween and really wanted to go. It was amazing. We got to see many of the graves you mentioned in the episode and so much more. My favorite part of the evening was the Widener graves. And if you recall, these were the ones who were on the Titanic? I do. I hadn't done any research before going. This was really a date for my girlfriend. I was just going because she wanted to go. However, it is worth noting that unrelated and yet totally related, I've always felt a special connection to Titanic. When I was incredibly young, I would wake up from nightmares screaming about water in the big boat and was terrified of being anywhere near the water, especially the ocean. I really didn't get over that until I was about seven or eight years old. When we learned about the Titanic tragedy in school, I aced the pretest despite having never even heard of it before that. Whoa. <laughs> More recently, my son and my cousin's son, who are close like brothers because my cousin and I are like sisters, built a Titanic-ish Lego ship together. And they said it reminded them of when we were all on the giant ship and died. Oh, my word. <laughs> oh, my God. Whoa. Why are they all having this connection? They were around four years old when this happened, which was two years before I went to Laurel Hill. Back to the cemetery. The tour was at night and it was October. In Philly, it's really dark by 5.30 p.m. at this time of year. It was pitch black, minus the little lanterns and flashlights we had to guide our way on the tour. I also had no idea who was buried in the cemetery or what would be highlighted on the tour. Our group was big and we were in the middle of it, but closer to the front. So we were waiting for everyone to catch up. I suddenly got goosebumps and could feel every hair on my body stand up. I figured it was October and windy, and I must have just gotten a chill. Then I got a whiff of cold, salty ocean air out of nowhere. I leaned over to Katie, yes, Katie and Kate, how cute, lol, and said, what is that smell? She looked at me like I was crazy. You don't smell that? It smells like the Atlantic in the winter, you know, the cold, salty ocean smell. She then actually called me crazy in a fun and joking way, of course. She assured me that it didn't smell like that at all. The tour guide then started speaking about the graves we were in front of, the Wideners. Katie side-eyed me but didn't say anything. She knew my theory about how I maybe died on the Titanic or another large boating accident in a past life and felt like this was not just a coincidence. She made sure we did a cord-cutting ritual before getting in the car to leave that night because she didn't want us bringing any souvenirs from the past home with us. Wow. As an aside, she had really been into podcasts and had been trying to get me to try them for a few months before this night. I was dead set against it because who needs even more media to consume? However, after this adventure, I had said to her that if there was a podcast about history and the paranormal, I could get into that. A few weeks later, I found HGB and I've been listening ever since. And she also supports the show. So thank you very much, Kate, for sharing that and for your support of us. Yeah, we love that. And what an incredible experience. I often have wondered if when people have these fears, if that's what it's from. I don't know what I believe about reincarnation and past lives and everything. I tend to lean towards you got one shot, make it a good one. 
And maybe sometimes I think if people have died young, they get a chance for more because it just seems so unfair that, you know, if a baby dies, they didn't get to have, you know, somebody else gets 80 or 90 years. Right. Definitely. So I don't know. Maybe they get another chance to go through the pipeline, (laughs) so to say. Great. (laughs) But I've often wondered, I have such a fear of falling. Did I fall from something at some time? And that's why I have a fear of that. Possibly. And so with some of these people who have a fear of water, did they drown in a past life? And so that's why they're afraid of water. Yeah, I guess we'll never really know until Til we get we there. Get there. <laughs> and guys, you've probably noticed that uh, we've got some more content that's been coming out to you. Not only is HGB producing The Ghost in You, which is about mysterious stuff in the Bible, but we've also got Phantasmal Crime going, which is true crime with a paranormal twist to it. Well, now we're going to be throwing something else into the feed here at History Goes Bump, and it's going to be called Paranormal Conversations. And these are going to be interviews, which are just kind of loose discussions about various parts of the paranormal. It's not just going to be necessarily about ghosts, because paranormal covers a whole lot of arrays of things. And we had our first episode of that drop this week. For those of you who are subscribed to the show, you probably noticed on Tuesday that you had this new thing all of a sudden in your feed. And we were very honored to be joined as, and we were very honored that our first guest, Kelly, was Jim Harold of the Paranormal Podcast and the Campfire. Yep, it was very exciting. We had a great time. And the way that we have been doing this, we end up with a video of it as well. So if you are subscribed over on YouTube, you may have seen that early because I actually dropped it on the Friday before the Tuesday, just to confuse everybody. (laughs) So you may have already seen the video of it. So if you'd rather see a video than to listen to the audio, you can do that at our YouTube channel. Please subscribe. We would love to have you over there. Absolutely. Want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. First, we want to welcome back Amber Mravitz. I hope I say that last name right. She's been with us for a while. And we're going to be burying her under an obelisk tombstone. And we want to welcome into the cemetery, Augusta Schmidt. We're going to be putting you in a chest tomb. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. We really could not produce this show without our executive producers. Sweet dreams. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook. Another of the first female legislatures. Legislatures. How about legislatures? <laughs> I, <can't laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> We've had a long morning. Already. We did. We were doing a lot of yard work and weeding. It's it the sun. Great, though. I blame the sun. And we moved our flagpole. We did. We did. Because we're kind of tired of having a video camera system at the door that we can't use the video because every time the flag flaps, it sets the video off. (laughs)
Oh my God, we're getting robbed again. We've never been robbed. Stop. Okay, well. <laughs> the Institute hit its peak during the Great Depression with three, three, three hundred. It was three hundred children. Oh my goodness. The number of children housed at the or- at orphanage. It was an orphanage. We probably shouldn't include any bloopers in this, so this is a sad story. Well, this will be after the fact, so... I know. And like I said, it wasn't a sad story necessarily for all children. And it was, you know, for some, thankfully, it was just a blip on their radar. Right. So Jay and Billy thought they were being told to return to the area of the gym where they had been seen before. Where they had been before. <laughs> I don't know what? Where you, 